Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Well, amen, and good morning once again. Welcome to North Roanoke and to God's Word. We're going to take a look at Philippians chapter 2. We're going to continue in our series in Philippians this morning. As you know, next Sunday marks the first Sunday in Advent. So we're going to be this morning in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to consider verses 14 through 18. And To sort of remind you of where we are, we're in the end of a section of Paul's letter that began all the way back in verse 27 of chapter 1, and it's a section in which Paul is urging the church, indeed commanding the church, to conduct ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of God. How? By living worthy of the gospel. And then he told us this requires that we stand together in one spirit and we strive together for the faith of the gospel. And this isn't always easy. Uh, Sometimes the world's attacking. Sometimes internally we have differences of opinion. And yet Paul is urging us to be united in our standing for the gospel. And then he presents to us Jesus, not only as the one who substituted himself on the cross for us, but in doing that, in that example of his selfless humility, that's the example we have to follow. We have to consider the interests of others more important than ourselves to facilitate this spirit-given unity in the family. And then in verses uh, 12 and 13, two Sundays ago, we saw that Paul basically says, just do it. Work out this salvation among yourselves. Live this way with one another. Let God remove the fleshly tendencies and the selfish tendencies that you have. Let him use the church life to, to scrub that out of your life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Just do it. And, and then what's, what's interesting, in our text today, Paul's going to apply that. He's going to tell us how to just do it. And in some ways, he's going to say, just do it by don't doing it. Just do it by don't do it. All right? So let's, let's dive into the Word together and see the exhortation that Paul gives us to obey and pursue unity in the face of of adversity. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord? Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would help us to shine and rejoice as your people for the glory of your Son, that you would find us a fellowship saturated by your spirit and compelled by your gospel such that we shine in the midst of a dark world and we rejoice in the opportunity to display that Christ is enough. We pray it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I want to show you two things from the text this morning. And the first point is kind of long, and then the second one we're going we're gonna to sprint to the end. So, so hang with me in point one. And, and it is this, from verses 14 through 16. We must live, Paul shows us, we must live as God's grateful children. That's the opposite of grumbling and complaining, right? Is gratitude. We must live as God's grateful children, distinct from the world. This marks us off from a crooked and perverse generation, and yet shining in the world, right? We're separate from the world, but we're in the world, and therefore shining in it. And we do all of this with the day of Christ in mind, all right? If, if you don't keep your eye on the day of Christ, it's going to be hard to keep shining. The world will want to rub your shine off. But there's a day that we're working toward that is eternal, that is lasting. And so Paul is, is making this big statement in 14 to 16. We've got we to be God's grateful children, separate from the world, but shining in the world. And how? Looking to the day of Christ. I could go to point two now, but I want to show you how I got there. So Paul, after telling us to just do it in 12 and 13, now gives us some serious application of what he means in verse 14. It's a command. It's a present, ongoing command. Not, not just on Tuesdays, which is your day off. Not just on the weekend when everything's great. Not just after your football team won the big game. But do all things without grumbling or disputing all the time. Wow. Paul, I think we could just bring the worship team up and give the invitation. I mean, seriously. I, I've, I didn't preach last week, so I've been meditating on this text for two weeks. In the Spirit of God, like every time I want to open my mouth and grumble and complain, it's like, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So you're going to get, in the next 35 minutes, what the Spirit's been doing in my life for two weeks. Congratulations. <laughs> it has not been a good two weeks. God has, has convicted me over and over again. To dispute is to express dissatisfaction or annoyance. It's to be a default complainer and nitpicker. To grumble is to complain about something in a bad-tempered way. It flows from the ingratitude of entitlement. You all know we live in an entitled society now. I was talking to somebody who works as a, a college registrar at, uh, I'll not name the university, but she was sharing with me about how the, the kids come because they couldn't get into a class that had a prerequisite. Or they got past the drop deadline and didn't understand why they couldn't drop the class past the drop deadline. And they're like, well, this is just who I am and it's what I deserve because I pay tuition. No, we live in such an entitled society. We live in such an ungrateful society. We just go take it from somebody else rather than earning it. I deserve it. It's mine. Me. Mine. And this this way that our world works is not the way that the church should work. We're entitled to the wrath of God. We deserve separation and judgment in hell because we 
were sinners far from God, and God graciously gave us himself in Christ, that should be the default mindset of our lives, which infuses our spirits and leads us away from grumbling and complaining. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Everything. There's not an exception in here. Do social media without grumbling or complaining. Do Interstate 81 without grumbling or complaining. Do hokey football without grumbling or complaining. Sing a hymn or a new song or a song that's maybe not your favorite tempo without grumbling or complaining. Expect change and do your best to make it as Christ-exalting and others' blessing as possible without grumbling or complaining. By the way, if you're not changing, you're dead. If you're alive, there's going to be change. Endure people who grumble and complain without grumbling or complaining. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Life presents plenty of opportunities, does it not, to grumble and complain? But one of the more compelling indicators that Jesus has risen and has given us new life and made us his people comes when we encounter stuff that might lead us to want to complain and we don't because he's given us an eternal perspective on our present challenges leading us to maintain gratitude for all that we have in Christ. It's within the context of this letter uh, that Paul is specifically writing to the church, and he's telling the church to not grumble and complain. He's saying, as Fee writes, everything that makes up the common life together in the church at Philippi, especially their standing firm in one spirit and contending for the gospel in the face of opposition, in these things, don't grumble and complain. In other words... Especially don't grumble and complain about your shared lives as believers in God's church. Being God's people on mission in this present wilderness as we wait for the return of our King is not often easy. It requires receiving and learning and growing in the selfless humility of Christ that was commended to us in verses 5 through 11 of this same chapter. This language, grumbling and complaining, reminds us of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. Indeed, it's the same language lifted from the Old Testament. Do you remember the wandering Israelites? God gave them everything they needed and they complained. They were seldom content, seldom grateful. Instead, they were murmuring and complaining. God fed them. God gave them water. Their shoes and their clothes never wore out and they complained perpetually. We know the Israelites in the wilderness are the example that Paul has in mind because he, in verse 15, uses language lifted directly from Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, which says that the complaining Israelites have dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished and are a crooked and twisted generation. Wow. God's people became the crooked and twisted generation. 
Do you see what Paul is saying? You're in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Be sure that you don't become that. Paul is urging the church to heed the warning of the Israelites whining in the wilderness. Don't do it. You take responsibility for making your church a no grumbling and complaining church and start with yourself. Why? Because the stakes are serious. The Israelites perished in the wilderness. They did not see the promised land. They were no longer his children. Grumbling and complaining are not fitting for those who have God as their father through faith in the unfathomable sacrifice of his son. And if you can grumble and complain and stir the pot and assume the worst of others with no conviction or no desire to course correct, that should be a big warning light on the dashboard of your soul. If you can hear verse 14 and you're like, I'm good, wow, really? No grumbling, no complaining? Whatever fussing and complaining is going on in Philippi, Paul says, stop it. Knock it off. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. Silva notes that Israel's complaining against God often took the form of complaining about Moses, right? They always... We're attacking their leader. And he, he goes on to say this, the disputes within the Philippian community likely involve complaints against their appointed elders who were not being treated with full respect. We don't know that for sure, but it's likely given the parallel to the Israelites in the wilderness. Whatever the reason for the grumbling, Paul tells us that to obey and work out our salvation and to live out, the, the, excuse me, Paul tells us that to obey and to work out our salvation, we've got to live out the selflessness of Jesus. We need to examine our hearts. We need to hold our tongues and do everything without grumbling or complaining. Why is that? Look at verse 15. Because that is how we are recognized as God's children in a twisted world. You see the word in verse 15, blameless? It's talking about our observable conduct. The world may not like us, but when we stand for Jesus and stand united in Him and endure challenges and setbacks and disappointments without grumbling or complaining, we stand out as God's children. If blamelessness here speaks of behavior that can be seen, the word innocent in verse 15 speaks more to the purity of our heart in our actions. We're not just doing right things and taming our tongues to impress people or gain an advantage or being known as the guy who never grumbles and complains. We're doing it because we love people, love his church, and love Jesus. And when we do this, it is shown we really are the children of God. We really belong to him. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3.15, For this is the will of God. That by being good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Of course, church, the world is going to oppose us whether we grumble and complain or not. But at least it won't justifiably be as whiners and complainers. They might accuse us of that, but if we're not grumbling and complaining, they can accuse us of all sorts of things, but it can't be as people who are whining and complaining. And we don't want to be known as whiners, grumblers, and complainers in the world because what do we have? We have Jesus. We have eternity with Christ. 
We need to be the last people in the world known as those who are entitled and grumbling and complaining about not getting our way or the election that didn't go our way or whatever it is that didn't go our way because there's going to be a day when our king comes back and he's going to raise everyone up and they're going to be judged either to life or to death. And if you are in Christ, you're going to have life everlasting with King Jesus and that's good news. Is that good news? It's great news. The words crooked and perverse, as he tells us, we're going to shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. These are synonymous words. Crooked means to be curved or twisted. Perverse means to be distorted. And together they refer to a generation of people, not just in one generation, not just in the last 40 years, but it's people throughout time and history who take God's truth and God's law and they twist it and they worship themselves rather than the Savior. These people, these individuals who reject the truth of the gospel, they're a generation of people with no regard for God and no regard for His ways. It is a twisting and corruption and opposition to truth that characterizes the overall thinking of the present world system. It's a way of thinking that will be demolished on the day our king returns. In Philippians 3.19, Paul says this about this generation, this world system. He says, they glory in their shame and they set their minds on earthly things. The very stuff that should make us ashamed is the stuff that the world has turned on its head and put it in the month of June and celebrated it. For 30 days. The very stuff that should make us recoil on the inside of, of who would do that or why would we do that or clearly that's contrary to God's law and is designed for people. People now glory in that. The stuff of the world system, earthly things, they, they worship money, they worship fame, they worship career, they worship education. They've turned the world upside down and they do not worship God or His Son. Let me ask you, what is the hope for that generation? Is it not the same hope that found you in the hearing of the gospel? Is it not the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is bright enough to lighten up the darkest sky and to turn the lights on in the heart of a wretched sinner and to bring them to faith in Jesus? Is not Jesus the hope of the world? And is not the way they will see the hope of Jesus that His people in the midst of a dark and dying world navigate this world without grumbling and complaining but loving one another and serving one another in Jesus' name? I, I love the progression of Paul's thought in verses 14 through 16. Don't grumble so your identity in Jesus is confirmed and it's evident in the world. Yes, the world is messed up and it does not want this for you. It doesn't want you to thrive. But if you will thrive anyway and not grumble and complain, you're going to shine like lights in the very world that thinks it can ruin you. The world that thinks it's going to take you out, if you will just stay focused on Christ, you will shine. Beloved, we have been saved to shine. 
You haven't been saved to sit or saved to soak. You've been saved to shine like lights or stars in the world. And we don't enjoy the darkness, but we should be encouraged to know that the darker the sky seems, the brighter the stars seem to shine. Do you remember what John says about Jesus in 1 John, excuse me, in John 1, 4 and 5? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. In Jesus you have found life, and in life you have light. He turns the lights on inside of you and inside of us to shine in the world. When we have life in a crucified Savior, we can shine even when the world wants to crucify us. Having the hope of life everlasting with Jesus should help us all be a little more like Tigger and a lot less like Eeyore. This is as Daniel prophesied it would be, by the way, in Daniel 12, 3. When he says there's going to be an end times people, he says those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You are those people. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Zechariah, you remember the father of John the Baptist, he goes into the temple and he can't believe it that he's going to have a son and so he's not able to speak until his son is born and his son is born and he, he gives this prophecy in Luke 179. He says, Jesus has come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And how is Jesus giving light to that generation? He's doing it through his church right now as we Unite together, forsake grumbling and complaining, and pursue the mission of God as one. We've been saved not to grumble and complain, but to shine the light of Christ in a dark and dying world. And to do this, we need far more than positive thinking. You ever heard people, oh, man, just think positively. Just be positive. Like, do you know what's going on in my life right now? I need more than just good vibes. Good vibes and positive thinking is never enough when the truth is on trial. It's never enough when the enemy takes your circumstance and begins to attack you like crazy. It's not enough when our flesh cries out for attention. Me, 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 look at me. I need the attention. I need the agenda. I need to be the one who is catered to. We don't grumble and complain. Why? Because we have the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of life, and we hold fast to that. We don't hold fast to good vibes and positive thoughts. We hold fast to the unchanging word of life, the word of the gospel. People get to see the light of Christ in the church, not when we run from the truth, but when we hold on to the truth of the gospel, no matter the cost. Whatever you're facing this morning, hold on to the truth of the gospel, that your eternity is secure in Christ, that he's returning, he's going to break the eastern sky, and if you are in him, you will be with him forever. That will get you through whatever the trial is. Fee says this, the people of God are to shine in the world over against its darkness, while simultaneously we are to illumine that darkness. 
by our attitudes and our behavior. We are to be clearly distinguishable from and in opposition to the world around us, yet we are also to be God's messengers bringing the word of life to the dying. We're opposed to the darkness, yet shining in the darkness for their benefit at the same time. To hold fast to the word of life. Word of life, this is the only place that Paul uses this term for the gospel. It means both sharing the gospel and showing the gospel. It means living the sort of self-humbling, Christ-delighting, Jesus-exalting life that the gospel produces within us and then sharing it with those around us. In other words, we live, North Roanoke Baptist Church, in gospel-fueled harmony not only for the sake of Christ, but also for the sake of the world. And we do so with confidence that shining faithfully for Jesus in a dark world has eternal significance. Look at the end of verse 16. Paul urges them to shine, to live in this way, to not grumble and complain, so that they will shine in the world because, so that, why? So that he'll have a reason to boast in the day of Christ. Did you know that having the perspective of looking to the day of Christ will impact your decision making? This is a pastor talking. Don't grumble and complain so you can shine so that I have a reason to boast in the day of Christ. Paul is thinking always about the day of Christ. This is what pastors do when they lead. They're thinking about as they make decisions, what's going to redound to the glory of Christ and be for the good of God's people on the day that it matters. Not playing politics with different opinions and perspectives on stuff that's tertiary and minor. Standing for Christ, for the day of Christ, for the good of God's people. This is how we ought to think. He wants to work for the glory of Christ and the good of the Philippians. And he wants his work and his running and his labor and his toil to register to the glory of Christ in eternity. He wants to be able, when he boasts on that day, to have fruit from his labor Now, some of you are like, Paul's being awfully arrogant here. No, he's not. Paul wants to boast not in himself, but in what Christ does through him in the Philippians. As Silver writes, his language reflects the promise of Isaiah 65. When God creates the new heavens and the new earth, and his people will rejoice, and they will long enjoy the works of their toil and their labor. Verse 23 of Isaiah 65, their labor will not be in vain. Fee says this, Paul's final word, therefore, is not a word of doubt, but of affirmation. By their heeding his words, he will have plenty of cause for boasting when they stand together before Christ that is coming. Indeed, the Philippians will be the primary evidence that he's neither run nor labored in vain. He says the same thing about the Thessalonians. Paul's not running and working for nothing. He's not pouring himself out for nothing. He runs and works and invests for a day of boasting, the day of Christ Jesus. Did you know you were made for boasting? We were made for boasting, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And in the work that Christ does in us, boasting in self is not what is in view for Paul. He says in Romans 5.18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. 
In 1 Corinthians 1.31, he says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So when Paul speaks of boasting in a positive sense, his intention is to boast ultimately in Christ who has worked mightily through him. Now get this, church. This means that the interconnectedness of our lives right now in the progress of the gospel into the world and deep in our lives, it should be a cause for great boasting when Jesus comes back. God wants our relationships to redound to the glory of Christ, and we get to have all eternity to go, look at what God did through my 3D group. I was teaching that lesson. I thought it landed flat, that no one was paying attention, and praise God. God, there was a lady in our class I had no idea had changed her life for the glory of Christ. I preached that sermon and it seemed like everybody was yawning and no one was paying attention and nothing was happening in people's lives. And there was a young man that one sentence was said that day that 30 years later God brought it to his mind and he brought him to saving faith in Christ. And it's not because of how great I am or great your 3D leader is. It's all of God and for God, but we're going to get to celebrate that stuff for all eternity. Look at what God did. It's going to be awesome. As those who become God's children through faith in Jesus and as those who have the promise of Christ's return, may God grant us grace to do all things without grumbling or disputing so that we might shine the light of Jesus without wavering on the word of life. And then Paul says, my final point, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul shows us in verses 17 and 18 that we must rejoice as we are spent for the glory of Christ, the good of His church, and the progress of the gospel. We must rejoice as we are poured out, as we are spent for the glory of Christ. After talking about the hypothetical possibility of running and laboring in vain, he doesn't believe he's going to run and labor in vain. It's a, it's a hypothetical. Paul now expresses confidence that the Philippians are going to keep on living out the implications of the gospel in their lives together. In, in verse 17, he uses the language of the Old Testament sacrifices. What's pictured here is the Levitical priest whose service included the offering of a sacrificial animal and often a grain offering accompanied by a drink offering, as we see in Numbers 28, 7. So sort of like the, the icing on the cake, the, the last of the offering poured out. But in this picture, what's interesting, right? Among the Israelites, the Levites were the only ones who could offer the render the service of the priesthood. But in Christ, we've all been incorporated into the priesthood. We've all been made priests. So in this picture, it's not the Levites who are offering sacrifices, but the Philippians. The Philippians have become the priesthood, for in Christ we have all become together priests to our God, serving Him not in a physical temple, but as the temple of His Spirit. How do we serve Him? What do we offer Him? We offer Him the totality of our lives. Like Jesus, our high priest, we offer ourselves as the sacrifice as we serve the Lord selflessly in faith. Paul here takes us from not grumbling and complaining 
in 14, to being glad or cheerful and rejoicing with one another, along with a reminder that to live for Christ is to live like Christ by offering ourselves to God in faith. In 2 Timothy 4, 6, Paul speaks of being poured out as a metaphor for his eventual martyrdom. In this case, he's speaking more likely of just suffering generally because he's already told us in chapter 1 that he expects he's going to be set free. There's a a little bit of a reading between the lines that's got to happen between 16 and 17, and I, I promise I'm getting near the end, but hang with me, all right? Here's what Paul is saying between 16 and 17. Just listen closely. I don't want to run in vain or labor in vain. And I don't expect that I'm going to. I know what I'm asking of you, church at Philippi, isn't easy. But I also know the life that Jesus produces in his children. And I believe you are children of God. I know the hope set before us on the day of Christ. So yes, I am calling you to be living sacrifices by serving God in faith. Doing things that are hard without grumbling and complaining. And I'm right there in it with you. If I'm the icing on the cake of your sacrifices for Jesus, I am glad and rejoice. If I'm the wine poured out to accompany the great sacrifices of faith that are going to happen in Philippi as you get through this rough spatch, I am glad and rejoice. Can you believe it? Look at what we get to do for our king who gave his life to give us life. I'm in prison, I'm headed for trial, and I am glad and rejoice with you in your sacrifices of faith for Jesus. Because we are in this thing together. I'm glad and I'm rejoicing with you all. All y'all, he says again. Remember back to the first sermons in chapter 1? He didn't have to say all y'all, but all y'all, even the ones that have been grumbling and complaining a little bit, I rejoice with you because you're going to get this figured out. By the Spirit of God living in you, we're going to get this on the same page together. And I rejoice with y'all in the opportunity to stop grumbling and complaining and to shine in a dark world for Jesus. And I know that's what's going to happen because you really belong to Jesus. Paul has told us that Jesus saves us to shine. And now he reminds us we've been saved to be spent We've been saved to be poured out. And being spent for the king who saves us to send us into a dark world to shine for the glory of Christ is, get this, being spent is a reason for rejoicing. We don't serve sacrificially to have something else to complain about. We get to serve the king who who was slaughtered to save us. You see, real living for Jesus is on the front lines of being poured out. You know why so many Christians are curmudgeonly, don't have many smiles on their faces, and lack a little bit of joy? It's because they haven't figured out that the real substance of the Christian life is living like Jesus, who for the joy set before him went to the cross to deliver his people. And so now we go to the cross with joy to deliver a dark and dying world. Far from grumbling and complaining, Paul assumes that his reminder has them rejoicing in their sufferings. And he says, I'm rejoicing with you. Do you see that progression of thought at the end of 17? I'm rejoicing with you. I'm in prison. I know it's hard and I'm rejoicing with you. 
I assume that you're rejoicing, and I'm in the prison cell rejoicing. That's how verse 17 ends. And then in verse 18, what does he say? You rejoice with me too. Yeah, I'm in prison. I'm on trial. The world would say I should be in misery, but let me tell you, I'm excited. Because I'm on the front lines of living for the king who was crucified for me. Church, let me ask you, what if we did this? What if we lived in this way? What if we didn't compare our sufferings for Christ to wallow in the misery or gain the attention of a pity party, but instead we relished our sufferings for Jesus as a reason to rejoice with one another? What if we rejoiced in our opportunities to be poured out for the glory of Christ? This is what it means to be a servant of God. We get to serve God. This is what Paul is saying. He's telling them to rejoice with him and by implication with one another in their opportunities to be spent for the glory of Christ. And he's telling us to pour our lives into selfless sacrifice and to rejoice every step of the way. I recall one time when I was working at Southeastern Seminary full-time in administration and also teaching a theology class Have you ever had these seasons at work? Everything just came due at the same time. I didn't plan it when I had accepted a preaching engagement at a sizable church in Raleigh months beforehand, but it all happened at one time. Anybody ever been there? And I was feeling sorry for myself and a little bit nervous. And I said to a friend, brother in Christ, disciple in Christ, I have to preach this weekend. Can you believe that? He stared me right in the eye and he said, I think you meant to say, I get to preach this weekend. Isn't that amazing? I've never forgotten that. What is your have to do that needs to become your get to do? What sacrifice of faith is God calling you to rejoice in so the watching world may see you and your family and our church shining for King Jesus? Beloved, now's the time. May we not be like the ungrateful Israelites on our journey to the promised land. May God help us to stop grumbling and complaining and start shining for the glory of our matchless King. Would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, take our have-to-dos and turn them into get-to-dos. God, I pray by your spirit, it can only happen by you, I, I pray by your spirit that the, that the gospel would so override our minds and our hearts that we would shine. Christ would be magnified and the darkness of the Roanoke Valley would be illuminated by your people. And that we would rejoice every step of the way and it would redound to the glory of Christ And in that day of his return, we'd have every reason to boast in what God has done.
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.